Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 89 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we're here today to talk about Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee. It's our read-along episode. So if you've read the book, welcome. If you haven't read the book, we just want to let you know that this is a spoiler uh, rich. I shouldn't say rich, but spoilers are allowed on this episode. So if you don't want to have any spoilers, read the book and then come back and listen to this episode in the future. Right. One of the lovely things about podcasts, they're still there. If you decide you don't want to listen to it now, you can come back later. Exactly. Remember the old days when we were kids when there was like a TV show and once it aired, that was it until it came out in reruns years later. Right. If they did. Right. Exactly. So podcasts, the gift that keep on giving. And we did have a chance to speak with men earlier in the week. So what we thought we would do is Chris and I are going to just chat about our experience reading it a little just with the two of us. And then we'll then we'll bring in men's mm-hmm. our conversation with her. And there's some breaking news. Very exciting breaking news. Yes. So you'll have to listen to that and what men shares. We're really excited. Yeah, it was funny. We were with Min on Skype and we only did the audio. We didn't do the video. And when Min broke the news, we we wished she could have seen our faces (laughs) because we're such nerdy book gals. Yes, we were like (laughs) big faces, open mouths, smiling eyes. (laughs) It was fun. Yeah. And she's so lovely. And it was so nice that she, you know, had the time to call us. She's quite a busy gal. If you follow her on any version of her social media you never know which state or country, country or, or hemisphere she'll be <laughs> <Right>. in. Exactly. <laughs> and she's teaching now, too, which adds to her her workload. So thank you, man, for that. So free food for millionaires. What'd you think? I loved it. And as I said on a previous episode, I was really shocked at how quickly I read it. I thought it would take me quite some time. I felt like it was not that Pachinko wasn't accessible, but I felt like sentence by sentence, Pachinko took me a little bit longer to read, whereas Free Food for Millionaires just felt like it felt very familiar and an easy story to sink your teeth into. And I fell in love with the characters, especially the main character, Casey Hahn, right away. Yeah, same here. I didn't know what to expect from it. And I, it just seems so fresh and so relevant. And the novel is over 10 years old at this point. It's about Casey Hahn, as Emily mentioned, who's a recent graduate from college. She grew up with immigrant parents who were working class, and she got a full ride scholarship to Princeton. And so her struggle post-graduation is living in the two worlds of her family and being a graduate from an Ivy League college and not really belonging to either world anymore or, uh, you know, ever right. in, in certain um, instances. Uh, her the, One of the boyfriends is the kind of guy who went to exclusive prep school, Ivy League school, and is rolling in the dough now, making money at a financial firm. Uh, this novel is set in the financial industry of Manhattan, which is a world I know nothing about. And another great thing about men is she made that world so real and accessible and still uh, it just blows my mind how with a few strokes, you can feel like you're in some high stakes office sitting around this conference table 
or in a back room shooting the shit with all these hotshot guys because it usually right. is guys. Yeah, and I thought she did a really good job too of portraying that male machismo that, you know, happens in a competitive financial setting. You know, and and I loved it also when um I I'm always a fan when the title is revealed somewhere <laughs> in the story. And that happened, you know, as Casey, right as she was entering um, her work life in this financial sector, I think it was a hedge fund, right? That's what I always pictured it to be. I don't know if that's really what it was. And they have this, what do you call it? Uh, um, I can't think of it. Like uh, the, the buffet. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what's it? It's like a tradition. I'm sorry. That's a hard word. <laughs> oh, my gracious. Um, a tradition of if one of the investment groups does really well they buy lunch for everybody. Yeah, based on the country of origin for whatever deal they just made. So it could be Indian food or Chinese food. And the line free food for millionaires, here it is. It's usually the guys who make the most money are the first in line to get their free food. Right. And one of the people that Casey has just taken this job and one of the guys turns to her and says, welcome to free food for millionaires, you yeah. know, because they all have money. And Casey is at a point in her life where she's really struggling. She's been thrown out of the family home because her she and her father have come to fisticuffs, literally, and just don't have mutual respect for each other and for the decisions that Casey's choosing to make in her life. So she's really in desperate straits to get this job and isn't eating well at all. What a dichotomy then to walk into this building where they literally give free food to people who have plenty of money to be buying it on their own. Yeah. And part of the novel is, you know, Casey's struggle to figure out what she wants in life because she's been kind of groomed to do certain things and she is good at certain things. And as one of the characters says, it's, it's kind of a curse to do to be good at something that you don't really like. Yeah, because you know, it, it leads you away from your true desires, right? It's always that question, right? Of do we want satisfaction in our work? Do we want to just make money and find our satisfaction outside of work, which I think a lot of people end up doing in their life. And Casey's so young that she's really trying to figure all of this out with also the added pressure of from an immigrant family. I think it's like, you know, you've been given this opportunity. You have this Ivy League education. You cannot squander it. You really need to go out and you need to have a better life than the one we had. Right. Also, you know, the inheritance that you have from the family that you're born into, the knowledge that you have, some of the characters who have grown up going to prep schools and Ivy League schools, they're groomed for these things. They have certain expectations. It's no big deal to drive fancy cars, wear expensive suits, go, you know, have golf fees, no problem, skiing, all that kind of thing. And for, for other people who don't come from those types of families, to then be in that world, but really not know how to function in that world is really challenging. And Sabine, one of the characters who is a mentor to Casey, who is a fashion designer, she has her own uh, retail shop, it's very designer heavy kind of store. I know nothing about the fashion industry. And this is, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I have watched Devil Wears Prada <laughs> and Top Model. So I know a little bit. <laughs> but the thing is, like, Sabine, uh, you know, at one point, Casey and Sabine get into this argument. 
And Casey's like, but you've done it and you've done it alone. And Sabine says, no, I didn't do it alone. I had tons of help from, you know, any, you know, people who gave me a discount on purchasing to delivery people like no one does it alone. And throughout the course of the novel is kind of what Casey learns. Right, because she really struggles with there are people in her life who want to help her and give her a break. And she's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. And she just doesn't want to accept it. Right. On many levels, even though she really needs it. And it could, in my opinion, could have made her life a lot easier. Right. But she that is not the tact she wanted. And she did. She went back and forth in accepting things sometimes and not others. And as you said, that was part of her genesis in, in the book was to really recognize that it's not a sign of weakness to really be willing to accept help from people who care about you. Now, that being said, there are also often strings attached. Absolutely. Obligations and strings. And you do have to be conscious of why you're making the decisions you're making. Right. And, I, and I do think that's one of the things that also does come with age. And she didn't necessarily want some of the things that were being handed to her. And that's a hard pill to swallow when you feel the pressure coming from all sides. Right. Yeah, because like one of the things that gives her joy is making hats. Right. And that doesn't fit in with the high stakes financial career right. at all when you're working, you know, 80 to 120 hours a week. Yeah. So to continue doing what gives you pleasure and making a living and existing where you want to live. She wants to stay in Manhattan, which is, of course, one of the most expensive cities to live in. Right. And how do you make that work? And it's easier to do it with a roommate or a partner of some kind so you can share the living expenses. And yeah. we see Casey go through a host of different partners and a host of different places where she lives. Yes. <laughs> which is partly was age appropriate. You know, the novel starts out when she's in her early 20s. And I think the arc of it goes towards her late 20s, I want to say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think it was what, like maybe five to seven year period. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. Every now and then there's a jump in time. But you know, the thing about how the story is written is I never felt judgmental towards Casey. And I feel like I could relate to the decisions she was making, even, you know, punching somebody in the face at one point. <laughs> um <laughs> And I could just relate to that, you know, and but you see that it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. And you think, Oh, God, yeah, what's gonna happen next, which is what kept it a page turner, of course. But you know, I had a hard time with one of the things that Casey does is she spends a lot of money on fashion, money she doesn't have. Yeah, we're talking like she's tens of thousands of dollars in debt, right? Credit, card credit card debt. debt. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I'm such a uber responsible person like responsible to a fault and I work in the money world and so I've always felt like when I hear because I've had clients who do that I mean I've had clients who make a lot of money and have some really tough habits that you know eat up a lot of their money and it's really hard to watch and you just I like I found myself saying to her like no don't do it but on the other hand those passages in the book were so interesting when min is describing the fashion and when we talk to min which you'll hear later she talks about how she didn't know anything about fashion and had to really educate herself in order to write those passages yeah that was one of the surprising things about the interview is that she said she did more research for this novel which was her first novel than she did for pachinko which right. kind of blew my mind and because there is that um 
a lot of people's first novel is slightly autobiographical and she's like this is not autobiographical at all right I mean as a matter of fact she you know as you said she did a lot of research and she really went out and changed her own path by taking like millinery classes to learn how to sew so she could describe those parts of the book when Casey is making hats you know, so I did think I have to admit before we talked to her, I had some ideas like, oh, she must have that must have been a little fun pastime that men had as a kid growing up or something. And it was not. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the things though, that I think is relevant, this is probably a, a pointless comment, but one of the gifts that Casey has is that she pays attention to people mm-hmm. in a way like she gives people her full attention. And the commentary from the omniscient narrator is what a gift that is to other people yes you know it's a uh, a, just a precious gift and I kind of felt that you know men does that like Mm -hmm. I felt like in the times we've seen her at events and um, watching her video take video questions and stuff during some of her speaking engagements I feel like she really does listen to people she does and she acknowledges people I mean if you're we did a, a bookstore event with men and she knew all of the booksellers names immediately and when she posts about the event she puts their names down. When she takes a question from the audience, she always asks the person's name and then reflects back on them in answer with their name. I mean, being someone who is incredibly (laughs) name challenged, I find that incredibly impressive. But also, I think it really does make people feel seen and heard when you do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then (laughs) swinging to the other side is the asshole. (laughs) (laughs) One of the assholes in the book. I just love this definition. And this is me reading it here. What made Ted an asshole was that he completely believed his own lies about himself, that he was a great guy with all the right values. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that is a great definition of that type of jerky person mm-hmm. who, I mean, we all know people who are on a spectrum of assholishness. Assholery. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I thought that's really awesome because I've actually been dealing with somebody who's kind of like that. And mm-hmm. it's just like, wow, your values do not line up at all mm-hmm. with how you're behaving. I just love that insight into that yeah. character. And, and the character... You understand him like like he's a character who's making tons of money and who had a desire and this dream of what his life would be like early on. And he achieved a lot of these things only to realize, huh, that's not really what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think all of the characters in this book, you just have such compassion for them. Yeah. Even if you don't agree with them or you wouldn't want them as a friend or associate, there's such compassion for the human condition yeah. in, in this novel, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, some of the other two of the other areas that I think men really touched on in this book are about love and infidelity. There's quite a bit of infidelity in the book. And there's also just different prisms cast on what love looks like in relationships of all sorts, Mm -hmm. you know, between sisters, between parents and their children, between people who are um, in love with each other, young love, and then people who are um, pining for other people, widows who have lost loves. It's in all sorts of areas that she looks at it. And I found that very profound and beautiful and sad, 
heart-wrenching reminding of my own past, you know, and um, it even reminded me of how we, we can grow to be more forgiving in our lives when we have more experience with love and heartache. And I, I found that part quite profound. I did too. I love some of the scenes where people find these brief connections with each other and why why they're attracted to each other as friends or lovers. Yeah. And and what it says about themselves. Mhm. Yeah. And the whole thing too about like what is infidelity? Yeah. I mean there could be a very narrow definition of it mm-hmm. and there can be a wider definition of it. Uh, it just depends on who you are. Yeah. And Ideally, if the person you're in the relationship with, if you're communicating clearly about what you both want. And I think that's one of the revelatory things about this book is that traditionally, a lot of people in relationships aren't very open about their heart and what they truly want because there are these gender roles Mm -hmm. and expectations. It almost seems like more of a luxury for more modern uh, contemporary people to have a different understanding of their own desires and making them come to fruition. You mean versus like the Victorian era novels and things like that? Is oh, that no, like mean? even like Casey's parents. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. you know, just from generation to generation mm-hmm. or um, Sabine and her husband, mm-hmm. whose name is escaping me right now, and his desire. You know, they're married and they're, they have a very happy marriage, but... He has this desire for romance that she cannot give him. Right. And he married her, though, because he would know exactly what to expect from her. So their marriage is apparently a happy marriage, but he finds romance elsewhere. Right. And she's aware of it. Mm -hmm. And it works for them. I'm not sure that made her too happy, though. I had mixed feelings about that one. But Sabine was a complicated character. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, she's the one that that was, um, you know, Casey's kind of mentor. And and I think she also was someone you assumed that Casey eventually would end up. I pictured it to be, not just be a retail store, but kind of a department store that Casey would, you know, end up taking the helm of Sabine's department store, that it was kind of a, a given that that would happen. Mm-hmm. But they had this love-hate relationship with each other. So I'm not sure. I I kind of wanted to ask men, like, in your imagination, what does happen with Casey? Right. I know. (laughs) Because it's a little bit unclear at the end. Yeah. You know, it's just a, it's a, the book is a a piece of Casey's life, not her full life. Exactly. Yeah. You, yeah. To to know what happens with them, it's fun to speculate on that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and so much about, about the book is about success and failure and, and what is failure. And I love a couple points in the book where failure is talked about as something that you need to experience, Mm -hmm. that it's helpful to experience failure on your, on your overall life journey. And I think your twenties are fraught with it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of if you're lucky and they are actually. Yeah. Here's another cool quote um, that I pulled out. When life didn't go your way, was it because it wasn't meant to, or because you didn't have the faith? Or was it that you couldn't make it so by the labors required of you? Mm. And I like that. That's such a great question. Yeah. Because I think when you're younger, you assume everything is going to turn out the way you want it. As long as you do these things, Mm -hmm. you're going to get that, whatever that is. And I think, you know, once you hit your later 20s or, you know, depending on what path you're on, 
maybe later, maybe earlier. Sometimes when you work really hard, you do all the right things. It just doesn't turn out the way you hoped it would. Right. What do you do then? Yeah. (laughs) How do you think about that? Well, hopefully you have a lot more life to live to figure it out. You know, it's funny when do you ever play that game with, you know, a friend or somebody where it's like, what age would you go back to if you were given the chance? And whenever someone says their 20s to me, I'm just shocked. It's like, I would never go back to my 20s. Would you? No, no, I'm really happy with where I am right now with my life. I have to say my 20s are really, really tough in a lot of ways. I I wouldn't want to go back there. Yeah. But I learned so much. Like, you know, the whole thing about two having regrets and whatnot, that's a tricky, slippery slope, too, because the things that you've done have made you who you are today. And if you like yourself, those were all those, quote, regrets are actually learning moments. Absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't not want to have lived my 20s. I'm glad I made it through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but and you know, absolutely, I agree with you. It's part of, you know, the learning that makes you who you are today. But going back there, I wouldn't. Now, I do respect people who say, I'd love to go back to my 20s body, just so I could like, <laughs> things wouldn't hurt so much. Yeah, <laughs> that one I get. <laughs> but, but not the mind and the lifestyle of a 20 year old. No. Right? Yeah. And and it's so interesting, too, because it is, you know, so you think just what you know now would actually help you get to what you wanted then. Mm -hmm. You still don't know Mm -mm. because there's so many factors. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The wisdom, the wisdom of our 50s is lovely. (laughs) Well, I feel like throughout my entire life, each decade has gotten better. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed my life more and more with each passing decade. I agree. I'm with you. Well, maybe if we, you know, it's too late now for this round of talking to men, but maybe if we get the chance to talk to her again, we can say, you know, we'd really like a novel of Casey in her 50s. (laughs) Can you pull that off for us? You know, it would be really (laughs) interesting to see where she ends up because that last scene is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I was reading it on my Kindle. And I think it said I had like, I was at 93% or something. So, you know, I'm anticipating I still have more to go. And I'm reading it and I turn the page and like, it was it. Oh. I was like, what? I was like, that is such a shocking end. But mm. it was a beautiful end. Yeah. And then there was all this other, you know, afterwards. And there was a little bit of, I think, a, a chapter of Pachinko on there and things mm-hmm. like that. I was like, okay. Yeah. No, that's one of the things about e-reading that's maddening to me is, you know, the shocking ending Yeah, when you think, you know, because you do look at those percentages or how much is left in a chapter or mm-hmm. something like that. And then it's like, bam. I know. And I planned my bedtime reading for that. And oh. it was just like, oh, man. All right. I'm either going to bed early or I'm picking up something else. <laughs> it was hard for me to pick something else up after this one. Was it? Yeah, I had yeah. a little hangover after mm-hmm. this one. It was such a good book. Well, we hope that If you haven't had the chance to read Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko, that you take the opportunity to do so. They're both wonderful, as is the author, Min Jin Lee, who's coming up next. Please enjoy our conversation with her. Happy Happy listening. listening. Hi, everybody. We are so excited today to have with us Min Jin Lee, the author of Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko. We have, as most of you know, who've been listening had Free Food for Millionaires as our current read-along, with the prize at the end having Min talk to us about the book at at the end of the read-along. So here we are. Thank you, Min, so much for making the time to talk with us. 
We really oh my goodness, I'm so it. happy to be on the call. Thank you so much. So Min, the copies that we have of the book have this lovely 10-year anniversary introduction that you wrote that kind of speaks to the process of writing Free Food for Millionaires and your process of building your own apprenticeship, writing apprenticeship, um, as you were raising your son. And, and here you are now. You've not only written Free Food for Millionaires, but you've written Pachinko. Both of them are huge bestsellers, and Pachinko was a national book finalist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just so successful, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm actually making fun because a lot of the times I just sort of forget all that stuff because I don't think any of it really matters. I think what's really the fortunate thing is when people will have the time to spend with you and your pages because I don't think any writer goes in, not any real writer anyway, goes in thinking that, their book is going to be this huge world-changing event because it's not. I mean, there's a lot of really good books that are published already. Whenever I meet new writers or whenever I read a new book from a writer I've never heard of, I feel kind of excited at the prospect of a story being wonderful and actually engaging with me. And also, I think about how much they had to do in order to get there. I did not have early success, and I think that in a way it has tempered my feelings about success and both failure because... I think failure is just the absence of critical and objective acclaim, but it doesn't mean that there's failure in the attempts that you made. I look back at all the attempts that I made, and I think that it's really quite lovely what I did. And all the books that were rejected that I've written before were not very good. However, it doesn't mean that my attempts were failures. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, it does. And I, I know that in the, the con at the end of the edition that Emily and I read, there was an essay that you wrote, and you touch on the issue of writing and how the work itself has to be the reward. Yeah, and I know a lot of artists say this, and I guess a lot of artists say this because it's really true. Most of our work that we do isn't about the objective metrics. And I think that for me, we're living increasingly in a data-obsessed era where numbers really matter. And I look at that with a very skeptical eye because what really tells me the um, metric of success is not the numbers of books that you sell or the number of eyeballs or the number of pairs of ears have listened. I, I think it's actually about the beauty of your intention, the beauty of what you do, and the dailiness of your life. And I think the quotidian habits that we have really need to pass muster through the test of time. And that's not a popular view, but real artists that I know really believe that what they do every day matters rather than once in a while something you know a big hit happens. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is so relevant to to Casey. You're the main character, free, free Food for Millionaires, who is struggling so much with success and what she perceives as her fuck-ups and trying to fulfill the, the destiny, I think, that her parents had tried to set out for her. And even their lack of understanding of what she has to go through, as she says at one point, success was her responsibility. It's what her parents wanted, but she alone was responsible for figuring out the mechanics of it all. And I'm wondering yeah. if, if mm -hmm. you could talk a little bit about, you know, Casey and the whole, uh, what I see is you really entwine desire and success 
so much throughout this book and, and what it means for different people at different times, even in their own lives. Well, I think, yeah, thank you for noticing that because I think a great deal about desire and about how most people are not allowed to feel their desire without feeling some level of shame. So one of the things that I see is that if I want, let's say, an apple, I want an apple. This apple looks really delicious. Uh, I think I have enough money for the apple, but I'm not really sure. But then I go to the store and it turns out that I'm, you know, let's say 16 cents short of buying that $2 apple. And then I have to walk away thinking, man, if I only had 16 extra cents, I should have had the apple. And then, of course, the person behind the register is embarrassed for me as well. Like, I think... It's something as simple and pedestrian as an apple. That desire can be loaded with all the wishes, the transactions, and the embarrassment of not being able to have the apple. I think the wish to be an artist is actually so much more costly. And there's so many different ways to measure the beauty of that wish. When in fact, if you think about it, if you're making art, you're an artist. Every, every, everything else is kind of like, and we know through history, we know through history, that so many people have been undervalued for such a long time or never valued at all. But it's not that the critics were right and it's not that the world was right. You're still making art. And I think that's the reason why you have to invert the entire assessment and say, I choose to do this because I want to and my desire is nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, that's that's really great. And, I, and I'm wondering if, uh, to ask you a question about the difference between America and Korea, is that, you know, since America is such a heavily capitalist society and art is entwined with that, do you, do you think that's a similar struggle in other countries? Or do you think in America here where we are so much about the bottom line that it's even more challenging to be an artist? It's interesting about South Korea anyway. South Korea is right now a heavily neoliberal capitalist society in which the classes are becoming even more split and the ocean between the haves and the have-nots is only increasing. So I want to say that. But in terms of the role of the artist in South Korea, I think artists are respected in South Korea and people who don't necessarily seek money are also respected. Ironically, I'm, I'm writing my next book about education in South Korea as well as around the world for Koreans. And one of the things that I see that young people, as well as their parents, want for the young people is not necessarily greatness or a lot of money, but actually what they want is stability. And that makes a lot of sense to me because South Korea has suffered enormous amounts of war and currently even every single day feels the possibility of a war, whether they express it or not, because the armistice agreement between the North and the South was signed, but the war still hasn't ended. So at any point, troops can come down or bombs could be leveled at South Korea, only guaranteeing mutual destruction. So that makes sense to me that parents would want safety and stability for their children. And usually the children are trying to get these bureaucrat jobs in which people don't make very much money, like the average salary is something between twenty-five dollars to $35,000 for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So they're not saying, oh, we want you to go to some fancy college so you can become a venture capitalist and be worth a billion dollars. They're saying, hey, can you take these 16 exams, pass them with the possibility of getting this bureaucrat position in which you can retire, let's say, 65 to 70 with a decent pension. So like examining that and then asking, going back to the original question of 
what is the role of the artist in a capitalist society? They're not saying go be an artist either because artists throughout the world and throughout time have never had stability financially. Yeah, and I think there's a history of artists having to find a benefactor as well, which puts them at a little bit of risk as to their security. So I think they still need to find benefactors today throughout yeah. history. And, and even in capitalist societies like the U.S. Right. So, Min, we forgot to mention to our listeners that we are not going to shy away from spoilers when we talk to you. So I wanted to um, read a little short passage from the book that I just loved because I found a lot of what Free Food for Millionaires was about was about love and the complexity of love and um, sadly infidelity, which is part of the complexity of love as well. But um, mm-hmm. but there was a, a point when um, Casey was reflecting on her relationship with Jay, and Jay was her first love in the book. And their relationship was one where they were both kind of starting out in life, and Jay was a little bit more successful than Casey. Casey was finding her way. And Casey now had a job where she had to go golfing. I'm just setting this up for the listeners a little bit. And she had this lovely set of golf clubs that Jay had bought for her when they were together as a couple and they are no longer together as a couple. And she's reflecting on that and the time that she had with him. And she says, it was such a curious thing when you thought back to someone you loved. It was possible to remember the unspoiled things and doing so lit up a bit of the sober darkness in your heart. And all the while, the memory of the hurting cast its own shadow, dimming your head with the nagging questions of ifs, and why nots. I just loved that so much. It made oh, me think you. about how important our past lovers are in our life and, you know, what they leave behind, both in this case, a physical thing that you always have to decide what's going to happen and how is that going to be represented in my life and, and the, the place they leave in your heart. So I wanted to talk yeah. to you a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I'm always so interested in our love lives. And by our love lives, I don't necessarily mean just our lovers, but just the things that we wanted. And again, this goes back to the question of desire. But love is a very intentional thing rather than a desire. So I could say, I wish to have an apple. But it's another thing to say, I'm going to save all my money so I could buy that apple, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want to have a car. That's a wish. I can just say that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to learn how to drive. <laughs> because why, why would you have a car if you don't know how to drive? And then I have to figure out what kind of car I want, what color, what kind of make, where will I keep this car? So there's all these problems about that desire. Now, having a lover, getting a lover, keeping a lover, and then losing the lover, you have to ask yourself what, what all that meant in your life. And of course, there's a lot of detritus after the end of a love affair or a relationship in which love was involved. And I look at it very carefully because I think in a way I'm learning about myself and the world that way because a love relationship is only a microcosm of the macro problem of the world. How do I love the world when I love one person? Mm. And I think that as I get older, I think much more about what that love meant to me and how I love and how I tolerate, let's say, betrayal. How do I understand forgiveness? How do I understand vendettas and revenge when you feel harm, when you feel injured? Like all those things 
are really important for me to examine because I think my goal is how can I be a decent person in this world and have love in my heart when there's so much evidence that there's great injury and evil in the world. Mm -hmm. So that relationship of love, that one person, or let's say the three or four people that you've truly loved in your life that you would, you know, fall on a sword for, how does that express your understanding of the world and how you'll continue to live? Because I think a life without that level of love is difficult to live. Yeah. Yeah. Without having, there's also, oh gosh, I, I don't remember the line in the book, but um, pleasure. You talk about a life without pleasure as well. And that of Mm -hmm. of course related to desire and, and love. One of the things about Casey, I was struck by, I don't mean to use that word. That was an accident to say the word struck, but in the beginning, there's a violent scene between her father and Casey where he hits her repeatedly. And then Mm -hmm. twice throughout the book, Casey turns around and hits other people. She punches Jay in the face and then she slaps Hugh later. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about that. If I think about the Katie Lang song about, you know, family tradition and how physical violence <laughs> is a family tradition. And here's Casey kind of, you know, turning around and doing what her father did to her. Yeah. I think the way we love is different than how we want to be loved. And I think that at the baseline, we're all hypocrites. Mm. So we feel a sense of outrage when Casey is beaten by her father. And we should feel a sense of outrage because you have a person who has an important role in her life. I think parents, whether they like it or not, and whether we like it or not, hold an incredibly godlike position in our memory, as well as in the way we love. And then of course, when we go out and we seek lovers, and we get lovers, that person in a way replaces that totemic importance, right? Yeah. So, so, and that is kind of proven cross-culturally. So in a way, when we, are injured and if we injure other people in kind in the same mechanical way it does show a transference and an application of the way we learn how to love very often if you talk to people who've been abused they will say things like he said he would stop he said he's really sorry and he said that i made him really upset because he loves me so much like you always have this sort of script of the toxicity of the way we love each other. And so I, for me, it was very natural that Casey would be a violent person. And in contrast, she could have been somebody who actually seeks people who injure her. That could have happened as well. There's actually multiple ways to approach it. Yesterday I was at school where I teach students and where I was teaching them, I had assigned the essay by George Orwell, Such Such for the Joys. And in this essay, George Orwell describes how he felt growing up attending the kind of like a primary boarding school that he attended. His actual school is called St. Cyprian's, but in the essay he calls it Crossgates. And the only reason why I mention it here is that at the school he was beaten regularly by his teachers and the people who were in charge. And then my students were discussing how horrific this was. And then I said, well, actually when George Orwell was a teacher, he also struck his students. And the students were really surprised by this. And I said, why are you surprised? Why are we surprised by this behavior? Because at the baseline, we do things that we find contemptible. 
because in the essay, Orwell is really clear that what he suffered was an injustice. And yet he thought it was something that he could do when he became a teacher. So I thought that was interesting. Very much so, yeah. Oh, well, you know, there's also that, you know, I mean, I think there's the abuse, abuse has a cycle, sadly, that gets passed on. And I think it's really complicated to look at. And, you know, I have to say that that opening scene in Free Food for Millionaires, where Casey is being abused by her father, I found really difficult. And Chris and I were talking about abuse and parental abuse and how you know, it affects, obviously affects Casey's relationship with her parents. And, you know, moving forward, she does have a lot of distance from them. But she also comes in contact with them at different points, usually for family events, celebrations yeah. and events that take place. I'm wondering what it was like for you to, to try, to, as, as the, the author, to try to get in the head of, I guess not into the head isn't the correct term, but just just to embrace that scene and write that scene, because I have to admit, I almost couldn't get through it. I was worried about continuing with the book because that was at the very beginning. Oh, that's interesting. So I do a lot of research for my book and I did more research for Free Food for Millionaires than I did for Pachinko. Wow. People are always sort of surprised by that because they kind of think, oh, it's your first novel, therefore it's autobiographical fiction that you wrote about where you grew up and therefore it must be something that you know very quickly. And actually... I based Casey Hahn on a woman who died at 9-11. So her name was Casey Cho. I took her name from the obituary that I read when the, when the victims of the World Trade Center were, they had obituaries of them published in the New York Times. So I saw her face, I saw her profile, and I thought, oh, I'm going to name my character after her. And then I did a lot of exploration and interviewing of young women with this kind of profile. And one of the things that I did notice is that domestic violence is something that we don't talk about very much in the Korean American community, but it is a very real thing as in any community. As a matter of fact, domestic violence runs across class lines, race lines. It's just something that people do to people who are less powerful. And I don't wanna make a generalization. It isn't always men hitting their wives, it also could be parents hitting children. It can also be siblings attacking their younger siblings who have less power. And I wanted to chronicle that. And also, it is the moment at which Casey has to leave the gate because in order for her to survive, she needs to get out of that house. And that was the, um, the plot device. But also, I wanted to reflect on something that is considered a cultural taboo. And... At the point that I was writing Free Food for Millionaires, I had sort of given up the idea that I ever published books. So I figured, I'm just going to write about everything that interests me. <laughs> and that was something that really interested me because I figured no one's going to publish this thing anyway. No one wants anything that I write. So I might as well just write the book about Koreans that I'm really interested in reading. Mm -hmm. And I had met so many people who had been abused by their parents. Mm -hmm. And I had met so many people like Casey Han, but... We have such different lives, Casey and I. So she became somebody who fascinated me because I hadn't done those kinds of things that she had done and I hadn't lived in the kinds of places she had lived. So she became that much more glamorous and interesting to me. And she was so much more outspoken than I was, which was something that I really admired. And she was, you know, sleeping around and smoking and 
just doing terrible things that I knew that <laughs> you know, was, nice kids didn't do. <laughs> she was also spending a lot of money on high fashion. And I wondered about yes. the fashion aspect of the book. Did you do a lot of research for that? I did a ton of research for that. As a matter of fact, I even attended classes at FIT for a whole semester. Oh, cool. Because I wanted to learn this thing that I knew nothing about. I knew nothing about millinery. Nothing. So I took a class in millinery, cost, I don't know, six, $700 because it's a state school. And I sat there and I learned how to use a sewing machine because I didn't know anything about sewing. And then I also met people who cared about fashion the way some people care about, I don't know, their jobs. Like for her, being visible by getting attention for the way she looked was incredibly important. I dress like somebody's suburban father so (laughs) (laughs) you know you know like a presentable suburban father so and I do that on purpose because I really don't I'm not that interested in having people look at me like I I don't think that's where my specialness lies (laughs) and and in a way I kind of want to be a little bit less noticeable because I need to have the quiet space to observe other people but she's not like that. Casey's a peacock. She wants people to see her. But she, and it's interesting to me to have that characterization because I think that in many ways, Asian Americans and Asians in America are often invisible. So I think a great deal about her wish to be visible is something to be ashamed of. I think very often women and feminists, especially who are women, look down at women who care about fashion. And I wanted to say, no, no, no. This is something that women want. And I want to look at it carefully, and I treated it no differently than if she said she was interested in Greek poetry. Yeah, I really like that about her. You know, it's it's like Devil Wears Prada, you know, clothing, fashion clothing, it's art, it's wearable art. Yeah. You know, you're making a, a statement. Well, and hats definitely make a statement also, and hats play a big role in the book as well. And also, why do we pretend that women don't want to be beautiful? I've actually never met anyone who doesn't want to be beautiful, even in her own special way or their special way. And I think that I wanted to honor that. And I think that as somebody who feels fairly confident about her intellectual ability, I really don't like that about my tribe. I don't like how we feel contempt for certain groups of people, certain kinds of writers. And I think that's kind of our weakness. Like if I was truly an open-minded, fair artist, then I think that I would look at every category and treat it seriously. So I defended people who shop a lot because it's no different than people who sleep around a lot. Like I think all of it in excess, any kind of lust or the equivalent definition for lust is over desire can be dangerous. But I think if you like beauty, there's nothing really wrong with that. Yeah. And I, you know, the thing too about money, it's like we all choose what we spend our money on. And I've sure. noticed, you know, mm-hmm. people judge other people for what they spend their money on. But it's like, well, just because you don't like to fly first class, you know, you, you spend your money on going out to eat. Or, you know, we all make our own choices, you know, when we have the luxury to make such choices based on the desires that we have. And again, up comes shame sometimes around all that. Right. So I really, really pushed it because the way she spends money is insane to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet. I also thought she's somebody who's really suffering. Mm -hmm. So if you were doing a lot of drugs, and drugs actually cost more than clothing, (laughs) and let's say you were 
dissipating your life and the choices that you have and deeply harming people around you because of drugs, most people would feel fairly sympathetic for that person because that person must be suffering in order to do that. Well, why don't we feel this way towards people who are shopaholics? We just make fun of them. We just make fun of them because it seems so trivial. Why do we make fun of people who overeat? But very often what I find is that people who shop a great deal or overeat, that they're more highly functioning than people who are doing drugs. Mm -hmm. because, because people who do a lot of illegal drugs and are high and check out, they really can't handle the day-to-day. -day. But people who overeat or who shop too much or um, sleep around a lot, very often they're highly functioning people who are kind of breaking down at a different kind of rate. <laughs> and that's interesting to me because that's actually more of us than people who are doing drugs. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just an, another form of self-sabotage. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something Casey struggles with. Right. Yeah. So in, in the novel, Casey is a re-reader. <laughs> she reads Jane Eyre. Middlemarch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Middlemarch. <laughs> so I was wondering about your reading style. Are you a re-reader? Oh, yeah. I love to reread. I reread because I'm trying to learn how to be a better writer. And I think that some great books have already been written that I would love to have written. I mean, and they have a point. And I, and I couldn't have written those books, not because of skill-wise, but just because that's their own story. None of us can actually write other people's stories. So I often tell my students who are writing, don't worry about things like people stealing your ideas because... I could give you a prompt saying girl meets another girl falls in love and they buy a home together. If I said that's the that's the situation and now I want you to go make it a story at conflict, 20 of you would write different kinds of versions of that. So I, don't, I always tell people they needn't worry about it. So to answer your question, when I do read, read books, I'm reading for insight. I'm also looking at mechanics. How did that person create a transition between the scenes and why? And very often I have to read a lot of old books because I like the sort of scope of the omniscient narrator. And very often a lot of my contemporaries don't do that anymore. There are writers who are working in that genre and also that point of view, but it's a little bit less. So I tend to read, read old books. I love Edith Wharton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reading her right now, Age of Innocence, again, and it's such a joy, even though I think the readership of that book is quite limited because she's a big name dropper of her period. Yeah. <laughs> and I think nobody, nobody really cares about who, who, who cares about what at that time in, in New York. But her specificity is really interesting to me. And also her level of compassion for what people want. I think that she was somebody who was really interesting because she came from a ruling class family and she had this bizarre wish to write novels. Well, yeah. You know, so, Ben, if I may ask you a question about your craft. So you enjoy these huge 19th century, early 20th century novels and you've written two that are very large. How do you go about working with that amount of material when you're revising and shaping the novel together well I do outline I do outline and I, what I think is sort of interesting about your question but also in my approach to that to our the task that I set before me is that I really like the big canvas I like the big canvas and I like the big questions but I'm trying really hard to anchor it in a very specific story 
And and I have to have a great deal of, you're going to laugh at me, but I have to have the faith that somehow it will all work out. Mm-hmm. So I don't work in a very direct, efficient way. I work in a very circuitous way where I write these sort of big sloppy drafts. And then I go, oh, that's what I wanted to say. So very often people are always so surprised that I could talk so well about the works that I've done. And the reason why that is, is because I've done it all the wrong way so many times. By the time I figured it out, I really know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Whereas if you talk to me in the beginning of my project, I'll have the idea of the topic. I'll have the idea of the question and I'll know where to look for the answers. But in terms of the actual putting together, which is what I think your question is, it's a lot like quilting. Like I know that, that a blanket will come out of this somehow. But that's really a question of faith. And I don't know how many people want to talk about that because it's a metaphysical leap. Mm-hmm. Like I have to believe that if I take all of my little quilt pieces and if I keep sewing and I just keep doing it in the sort of quotidian way every single time that I get a chance to work, I'm going to work on it. And I'm going to believe that a beautiful blanket will come out. And the design and the pattern of the quilt will make sense eventually. I don't know if that's what young writers at least want to hear because sometimes what they don't want to hear is that I've gotten it wrong so many times before the quilt emerges. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm reading um, Anne Lamott's book Bird by Bird right now. That's about, you know, oh, about, so marvelous. about writing. So marvelous, yeah. And I love, you know, it's very similar to what you're saying where she'll, you know, she'll talk about something like that and then she says, and then her students will say, do I need an agent? You know, like, cut to the chase here, lady, you know? (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, it's so true because I I teach fiction and I teach personal essay writing at Endless College right now and have these very, very talented students. And the thing that I really see is it's not that they lack talent or that they don't or that they lack story. They actually have lots of stories and they have lots and lots of talent. What they don't seem to understand, and I think it's just the problem of youth, is they don't realize how long it takes for you to have a point of view about life. And that just takes time on on Earth. And what ideally what you want to have is you want to develop a point of view about life as well as in, in the same parallel track, you want to be developing your skills. Because writing anything requires skills no different than if you're going to do brain surgery right and i think people don't like to hear that part but it's true so i can look at a paragraph and tell you exactly what works in terms of point of view plots you know sense of time characterization dialogue tone mood setting i I could tell you all the different aspects of this one paragraph but that took me a really long time to figure out that and that's a different skill than having a story and a point of view, as well as compassion for human beings, which is actually what you need to be a writer. Right, which is very prevalent in Free Food for Millionaires, I think. So you really accomplished it there, Min. Oh, golly, thank you. Thank you. So are we allowed to ask you how your next book is progressing? Sure, you're allowed. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have two books coming out. One is, they're not coming out anytime, you know, this year. But my next book is actually a memoir. Oh, cool. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. 
I've only started talking about it because I'm working on it right now. And I've been working on it for a very, very long time, but I didn't know if it would ever... It's just kind of like all of my writing projects. Like, I just kind of think, like, no one wants this piece of shit. I really... <laughs> you know, like, so there's a, there's a... I have an enormous amount of self-doubt, and I find that it's very helpful because it makes me work on quality. Because I kind of think by the time it gets to you, it better be fucking great. Otherwise, yep. do not waste Emily and Chris's time. <laughs> so... So that's that's my quality control right there. But the next book is a memoir, and it's called Name Recognition, and it's a memoir of visibility and voice. And it's about learning how to be visible, and it's learning about having a voice, and it's about what it took. Wow. So does this? So that's my next book. And that I would imagine has a lot to do with um, when you talk about knowing once you you know once you had some success in your writing life that you had to become very visible right right and that wasn't even my intention but what i figured out at this point i'm gonna be 51 next month is that at this level of being middle-aged woman i figured out oh i've spent over 25 years learning how to write and figuring out what my point of view in life is and, the, and thinking about the things that I'm interested in and I'm no longer ashamed of them. Like, I'm, you know, I, I think at this point I figured out, oh, you know what, if I'm looking at something, it's because I should be looking at it. Whereas before I thought, are you crazy? I mean, don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's like nobody wants you to do that. That's, that's nuts. Whereas like now I kind of think if I wanted to write about pornography, if I wanted to write about, <sighs> let's say child abuse if I wanted to write about suicide if I wanted to write about fashion like I have the right to do that and that took me a fucking forever whereas I've met young people who kind of think whatever they're looking at is the right thing and I'm always like wow that's kind of cool how did you do that <laughs> how did you have that level of entitlement and yeah. I don't I'm not judging them I actually think it's great I actually think you should walk around thinking that your thoughts matter you shouldn't yeah. walk around thinking like oh I'm insane so that's <laughs> that's an interesting kind of reversal about getting older like that's what I like about getting older yeah yeah so yeah. that's in one sense about the book but the next book that I'm working on is the novel that I've been working on for a very long time which is called American Hogwan and that's about education and what it means to Koreans around the world and that will complete the trilogy the Korean. Well, thank Fantastic. you so much for sharing that with us, man. Great surprise. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that you. Sh I wish you could have seen our faces, our faces when, like... when you said you had two books coming out. We got very yeah, so excited. I, <laughs> I think the memoir will probably come out in 21. All right. I imagine probably 21. And then Hagwon will probably come out in 24, maybe 25. I mean, these are... That, this, is, this seems like a long time from now, but it never seems like it's enough time for me because I really like, I kind of like being alone with my little pages and butting around, so. Yeah. Well, we have good things to look forward to. That's right. Because <laughs> both of those it's, are just around the corner at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome to talk to both of you, Chris and Emily. Thank oh. you for having me on your show. Thank, Thank you, so you so much, much man. man. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.